Good morning, everyone. As you have already heard, this is part three of our four-part series on how to study the Bible. And some of you may be thinking, oh no, I have not heard the first two parts. Well, I have two pieces of good news for you. The first, as was mentioned earlier, is that this is being recorded and will be posted on Audioverse, so you can catch up later. The second piece of good news is that understanding the dynamics of our church, this particular session, this hour, can stand alone. You can hear the message. It's actually a Bible study, not so much a sermon as a Bible study. And you will still understand everything that is presented. However, if you've been a part of our study for the past two sessions, you will have to think with another half of your brain. And that is, hear the message as it's presented, but also be thinking through the principles that we discussed, particularly this morning in Sabbath school time, and how it's being put into practice. So does that make sense? You're going to have to think. And some of you might have to think harder than others. I guess it's the end of the school year, so might as well pack in all the thinking we can before the summer comes, right? Well, before we get any further, before we get into the Word, I ask you to bow your heads with me one more time as we pray. Father in heaven, we are thankful for your Word, and we are thankful for the Holy Spirit that you have promised to help us understand this Word. And we also praise you for Jesus, who is the living word, who came to dwell among us. Today, may we come to a better understanding of who he is and how we can respond to your commission to us. May you guide us in this study of the Bible and help us through this exercise to be better equipped for your soon return. We thank you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's begin in our Bibles in Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, our scripture reading for today. Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, and we're looking at the last two verses of the last chapter of the first book of the New Testament. And this will form the platform from where we are launching into our Bible study today. This is commonly known as the Great Commission that Jesus leaves with his disciples before he ascended back to heaven. He he said, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. So to whom is Jesus speaking in this particular instance? Who is he talking to? We don't have to guess. Let's look up a few verses in verse 16. It says, Then the eleven disciples, why were there only eleven by this point? Judas had killed himself. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee unto a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. So who were the people Jesus spoke these words to? The disciples. Very good. And this is right before he ascended to heaven. So sort of you can think of this as his last words, his last wish before he 
takes off. Verse 19 begins and says, Go ye therefore. So he says, Go ye, meaning the 12 or 11 disciples, therefore. Verse 18 actually tells us why the therefore is therefore. He says, All power, verse 18, is given unto me in heaven and the earth. Go ye therefore. So he says, I have power to bestow upon you. Therefore go. And go and do what? In verse 19, go ye therefore and do what? In the King James Version of the Bible, it says, go and teach all nations. How many of you have Bibles that say teach all nations? Okay. I've realized in my research here that all modern translations, including the New King James Version, translates that differently. In my Bible, my King James Bible, it actually has a marginal reading for that phrase, and teach all nations, and it says, or make disciples. How many of your Bibles say make disciples? Yeah, most of us, I think. So if I can say it another way, Jesus says, all power is given to me in heaven and in earth, therefore go and do what? Make disciples. You will notice that is the title of our message today. And how do you make disciples? By baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost and teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying this is his commission, meaning this is what he's telling us to do or telling his disciples to do when he departs. He says, go and make disciples. And how do you make disciples? Two things. You baptize them and you teach them. Are we on the same page so far? So, if Jesus is telling this to his disciples, you are my disciples, go and make disciples, it tells me that in order for us to go and to make disciples for Jesus, first of all, we must become what ourselves? Disciples. Makes good sense, right? How can you call someone else to be a disciple when you or yourself is not a disciple? So, here's the question I want to ask you. What is the word what does what's a word that we use that means make disciple anyone want to venture again how do you make a disciple is there a word that means make a disciple how many of you are thinking well the word disciple means to make a disciple right like Haven't you heard the term discipling someone? The pastor is discipling his youth pastor or his young people. This is very interesting. I did some research into this, and I looked at the dictionary, at the word disciple. And it says this. This is the New Oxford American Dictionary. This happens to be the one that's built into your Mac, by the way. A personal follower of Jesus during his life, especially one of the 12 apostles... Okay. Disciple. It's a noun that means a personal follower of Jesus, particularly the twelve. It also has another definition, a follower or student of a teacher, leader, or philosopher. Okay, we, we agree so far that a disciple is a noun that represents a person who is a follower of another teacher, leader, philosopher, whatnot. 
And I realize that in the dictionary, the word disciple is not listed as a verb. There's disciple as a noun. There's discipleship as a noun. There is discipler as an adjective. But disciple is not a verb. I dug a little deeper and I went to the Merriam-Webster's Dictionary webpage. And I looked up disciple. And they have a little section at the bottom for people to comment. You can actually, there are actually people out there who would go to a dictionary website to comment on words. I always thought I was a nerd, but that's going too far. But I read the comments, and there were people who actually said, why is it not listed as a verb? Disciple. Don't we disciple people all the time? And discipling is not a verb. And there was an argument You know how that goes online, right? Comments, people going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Well, this is the reason why. That's a real word. Merriam-Webster is wrong. Blah, blah, blah. They went on and there was this debate that says, disciple is a verb. No, disciple is not a verb. And guess what? After reading through it, the only people in the world who uses the word disciple as a verb are modern-day Christians. In fact... You can read the Bible from cover to cover. The word disciple is never used as a verb. It is always used as a noun. You read the early Christian fathers. You read the pioneer writings. You read the writings of Ellen White. Disciple is a noun, not a verb. So why am I making such a big deal out of this? Is that Jesus tells us to go make disciples. And if modern-day Christians, Christians within the last century or less, have concocted, created our own word to to mean what we think Jesus meant when he said make disciples, we have a danger. And the danger is simply that we, in creating our own term, now we can imbue that term with whatever we want it to mean. And so in the name of discipling young people, Sometimes, perhaps, we create activities, amusements, entertainment, gimmicks, games to quote-unquote disciple them. Because we say, but that's what Jesus told us to do. Do you see the danger of us creating words that the Bible never used? In fact, it's a word that most modern-day people don't use. Because here's the issue. The Bible actually tells us how to make disciples. We just read it. You baptize them and you teach them. In fact, it's so clear that the King James, the translators of the King James Bible, they just said, go and teach all nations. To them, it's synonymous with making disciples. You teach someone. And here's even more interesting, something more interesting, is that the term teaching is not nebulous. The word teaching is not ethereal. We understand what teaching means. But when we say discipling, it can mean whatever we want. But let's drill a little deeper here. Let's look in verse 20 of this chapter. Matthew 28, verse 20. 
It doesn't just say teach them anything. In fact, other places in the Bible it says preach the gospel to them. So we know that preaching and teaching can go together. But specifically here, Jesus says, what are we to teach them? Okay? Teaching them to do what? To observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. All right. So what is another word for observing what Jesus has commanded? What's a word that means to that? What's another word? Obey. So if I can use that word, we are to go into the world to make disciples, and we make disciples by baptizing them and then teaching them to obey Jesus. You're with me so far. How do we teach people to obey? Some of you are aware that my wife and I are expecting our first child this summer. Yes. <laughs> That's usually the response I get. And it's a little girl on the way. That's what I expected too. And so in the process of getting ready for parenthood, we're reading books, we're reading blogs, we went to a parenting seminar. We talked to all the experienced parents that sit about in the past quarter of this church. And inevitably, in every discussion, in every book, on every blog, in every seminar, they talk about something. And it is how to teach children to obey. And you know what? There is a word for that. What's that word, everyone? Discipline. Wait a minute. Are we talking about another word here that sounds very close to discipline? Ladies and gentlemen, when a soldier goes to boot camp to become a soldier, what do they go to learn? Discipline. If a musician is training under the greatest master of that class, what must they learn in their craft, in their art? Discipline. So to be a disciple of Jesus, don't disciple them. Teach them discipline. But, before we go any further... I want to read this from the book Steps to Christ, page 60, paragraph 2. It says, Obedience, the service and allegiance of love, is the true sign of discipleship. And by the way, this comes from a chapter in the book Steps to Christ called The Test of Discipleship. And she just comes out and says, The true sign of discipleship is obedience. So Jesus is telling us, for you to be true disciples, you must learn to obey. And the process of learning to obey is called discipline. In this parenting seminar that my wife and I went to not long ago, the, the speaker put it very succinctly that I thought was profound. He said the process of disciplining children is the process of inculcating the values that we want them to have so that they'll become disciples of Jesus. Because when we think of discipline, what do we usually think of? Think of spanking, we think of lectures, timeout, we think of punishment, right? 
But discipline is a broader term than punishment. And teaching is a broader term than discipline. So let me, let me explain it this way. So Jesus says to go teach all nations. Teach them. One of the ways to teach people to become a disciple is by discipline, which is a subset, one form of teaching. And within discipline, one of the ways that you discipline is punishment. It's a, it's a funnel effect. And so, is it possible that while, yes, discipline means more than punishment, it means more than corrective action, can't, is discipline really something that God does to help us become disciples? That's one question. And then the second question is, is this a legitimate connection between discipline and discipleship? Okay, so we've got two questions on the plate right now that we need to answer. Number one is the question, does God really discipline his people? Is that a fact in the Bible? And the second question is, does discipline actually have a connection, a relationship to discipleship? Or is this something that we are imagining? So to answer that question, turn your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, and we will begin reading in verse 5. Hebrews 12 and verse 5. And at this point, I'm going to deviate slightly from my usual practice. I preach out of the King James Version of the Bible, but I'm going to read this passage in uh, the ESV. English Standard Version, and you'll understand why. The meanings are the same, but some of the words are a little bit more modern. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 11, this is what it says. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and chastises every son whom he receives. If you have the King James Version of the Bible, it uses the word chasten. The word chasten and the word discipline mean the same thing. And Jesus, or rather, the writer of Hebrews here, is actually quoting, quoting from the book of Proverbs. If you remember the song, the scripture song, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, one of the verses says, My son, despise not, the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. You remember that song? The writer of Hebrews is quoting that verse right here. And he explains, do not be weary when God disciplines you. Why? Because it is evidence that you are his son. Let's keep reading. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his what? In his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields, what does it yield? The peaceful fruits of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. 
In the King James Version, it says, the peaceable fruit of righteousness. So we had two questions on the table. The first question, does God actually discipline his children? The answer is clearly yes. And the writer of Hebrews explains to us why he does it. On the contrary to sometimes how we think, when we suffer pain, when we suffer some discouragement, when we suffer things that cut across the grain, it's easy for us to question the love of God. It's easy to question whether God truly loves us. But when we read this in the Bible, it actually tells us it is an evidence that God loves us that we are disciplined. Because our parents want us to be good, upright citizens, and so they discipline us. Should we expect any less from God? And he continues and says that there is a goal at the end of this discipline. God doesn't delight in just causing pain to his children. He's trying to accomplish some end for our good, that we may have his holiness, and more specifically, that we might have the fruit of righteousness. Keep that thought in your mind. Because we're going to John chapter 15. John chapter 15 and verse 8. The Gospel of John chapter 15 and verse 8. So we've seen Matthew 28. It says, go make disciples. And one of the key ways to make disciples is to teach them to obey. And we're saying that teaching people to obey, we call that discipline. And we see so far that God does truly discipline His children. And God disciplines His children so that they might bring forth the fruit of righteousness. John chapter 15, verse 8 says, Jesus Himself saying, Herein is my Father glorified, that you do what? Bear much fruit. Continue reading. So shall ye be my what? Disciples. So Jesus says, the evidence that you are my disciples is that you will be bearing much fruit. And in Hebrews, we're told God helps us to bear more fruit through the process of discipline. And discipline is teaching us how to obey, which is what Jesus told us to do in Matthew chapter 28. That's how we make disciples. And so we see that connection so far, but I need to pause here because it's easy for us to get a little beside ourselves. Because just like our parents disciplined us, the goal is not mere outward compliance. Amen? The goal of discipline is to inculcate the values internally so that there is a desire to obey, to do what's right on their own volition so that the child will choose, will love to do what's right. Is that not the goal of discipline? Yes or no? Yes. And so when we're talking about this concept of discipline, we need to be realistic. And that is that God is in the same manner, not just merely looking for outward compliance or behavior modification. He's looking for a genuine transformation of the heart so that the values are written upon the mind. So how do we do that? How does that work? How does God help us accomplish 
the true goal of discipline. Let's look at the first few verses of John chapter 15. Because this chapter actually tells us how to bear fruit. How to become a true, genuine disciple. John chapter 15, let's begin begin in verse 1. It says, I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away, and every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Pause right there. Jesus here is using figurative language. He's metaphorically speaking. He's saying, you must abide in me, as a branch abideth in the vine. He says, I am the vine. I am the trunk of this tree or the grapevine, whatever, and you are the branch that's grafted in. And he says here that every branch in me that does not bear fruit, what happens to it? Snip, snip, it gets cut off. And every branch that does bear fruit, what happens to it? The King James uses the word purge. The word is prune. So there are two types of branches. The branch that bears fruit and the branch that does not bear fruit. Does the Bible say, does Jesus say that the ones that do not bear fruit goes under the knife and the one that does bear fruit escapes the knife? Does he say that? Is it not true that this verse tells us all classes of branches get cut? One gets cut clean off the other, the other one gets pruned. Both get cut. But the difference is one cuts off and the other stimulates further growth. My wife and I are aspiring gardeners. We actually have an orchard that we put in. I say orchard just to impress you. We actually have six trees. Not much of an orchard. But nevertheless, I've been reading up on pruning. How to prune trees. And pruning a tree, if it is a strong branch, particularly early on, if this branch is strong, it's got a good angle to the trunk and it's growing strong, you know what you're supposed to do with it? Cut it back to an outward-facing bud. What cut the strong branch back? Some say cut it half. Some say cut it back to one-third the length. You know why? Because when you cut it back, it stimulates lateral growth from the tree. So what is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying, if you are not bearing fruit, I'm going to cut you off. But if you are bearing fruit, you're still going to get cut. But the cutting process, and may I use the word discipline, will cause you to grow more fruit. But we continue reading. That's not in the end of the story. The secret is still coming. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken to you. Verse 4. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine. No more can ye except you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He that abides in me and I in him the same brings forth much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. So the secret here is Not just the discipline, not just the cutting. The secret here is that living connection with the true vine. Because imagine with me. If the vine has a strong connection 
and you cut it, it's pruning. But if that connection to the vine is damaged, if it's been marred, if it's been hurt through disease or injury, the cut will kill the branch. So the secret to bearing fruit, the secret to discipleship, yes, discipline will be involved, but that's not the ultimate goal. The way that the discipline will accomplish its work is that right now the connection, the junction between us, the grafted branch, and the true vine must remain strong. Jesus continues, verse 6, If a man abideth not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. And verse 7, how do we abide in Jesus? He says, If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. So how to study the Bible has everything to do with abiding in Jesus. How does that word abide in us? Are we assimilating it into our thinking, into our minds? Because now we get to verse 8, where it says, Herein is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples. So we're building this picture of what it means to be a disciple. There is discipline involved, yes, but that's not where we start. Where we start is making sure that we are grafted into the true vine. That we are abiding in Him and He is abiding in us. And one of the things that we see here, that abiding takes place when the Word of God abides in us. So how do we get the Word of God in us? (laughs) It's not a trick question. If we have these words here, how does it get from here on the printed page into here into our hearts? Or here into our hearts? What are the avenues is either going to come through our eyes or our ears. I mean, we, can't, we can eat it too, but that's not really what we're talking about. And so let me put it simply. We talked about this last night in our, in our study. The fundamental, most important thing we must do to study the Bible is to just read it. And it's going to take time. It's going to take deliberate effort. But if this... These words are not going through our eyes or through our ears, through the neural pathways, into our brain. The word is not in us. Simple as that. But let's make this a little bit more practical. So we're talking about abiding now. Making this connection sure with the true vine. I want to share this passage with you from Steps to Christ, again, page 70, paragraph 1. This is what Ellen White says. She says, this is something very practical that we all ought to do to maintain the daily abiding relationship with Jesus. What does she say? She says, consecrate yourself to God in the morning. Make this your very first work. Let your prayer be, take me, O Lord, as holy thine. I lay all my plans at thy feet. Use me today in thy service. Abide with me. And let all my work be wrought in thee. This is a daily matter. Each morning, consecrate yourself to God for that day. Surrender all your plans to him, to be carried out or given up as his providence shall indicate. Thus, day by day, you may be giving your life into the hands of God, and thus your life will be molded more and more after the life of Christ. So, making this imminently practical, how do we abide in Jesus? We spend time with Him. 
Consecrating ourselves every morning. These, here are a few key words. Consecrate yourself in the morning. Make this your first work. This is a daily work. And during that consecration time, you ought to pray. And there are several things to pray for. Pray that He will abide with us. Pray that He will take our plans. Surrender our will to Him. Let Him make our choices for us. And of course, study His Word. And I know you're thinking, yeah, yeah, I've heard that before. Haven't we? I mean, we've been told this ever since we were little kids. Now you need to spend time in prayer in the morning. You need to study your Bible. You need to pray for Jesus. Pray to Jesus. Have you ever heard of the term doing devotions? Yes or no? This is what it's describing, is it not? The process of doing our devotions. And that's just the problem. I'm here to tell you today... Stop doing devotions. If you want to abide in Jesus, stop doing devotions. Let me explain. If you have a dog who is a very loyal dog, would you ever say, boy, that dog, just look at the way he does his devotions. Would you ever say such a thing? That servant does his devotion to his master so wonderfully. Would we ever use the word in that way? Would it not be more appropriate to say that dog is devoted to his master? That servant is devoted to his master. When we use the term doing devotions, it communicates a wrong perspective on what we are actually accomplishing. Because all of a sudden, devotions is an activity that we check in and we check out of. It's something that we wake up and we say, oh, I have to do it? All right, God, I did my devotions. What are you going to do for me now? Do you see the problem with this kind of thinking? When we read John chapter 15, we're not talking about, okay, make sure you've done your abiding with Jesus. You don't do your abiding. You either abide or you don't abide. And so don't do your devotions. Just be devoted. And when you have that mindset, I am devoted to Jesus all day long, When you wake up in the morning, the first thing on your mind is to say, Lord, I renew my consecration to you today. And it's not, okay, I did it. It's, I renew it so that I remain devoted the rest of the day, no matter what happens. Does that make sense, yes or no? So a disciple of Jesus is someone who has that living connection to the vine. And just think about this illustration. You don't say, okay, I'm going to graft this vine. I'm going to make sure it's connected for five minutes every morning. And we'll come back and we'll make sure that's touching for another five minutes tomorrow. It does not work that way. So please, just like a loyal dog is simply devoted to his master, let us simply be devoted to Jesus. Stop doing devotions. And just be devoted. 
And why is this important? Because a disciple must be devoted to his master. And that devotion comes through the abiding process. It doesn't start and stop on the clock. It happens all day long. And as long as that connection, that abiding takes place, when the pruner's knife, when the disciplinarian, God, our Heavenly Father, shows up, the result, yes, there'll be pain, yes, there'll be discomfort, but the result will be stimulated fruit-bearing, which happens to be the evidence of a true disciple. So, turn your Bibles now to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. So Jesus told us to go make disciples. And we see now what that involves. Yes, there's going to be discipline involved. Yes, we have to be abiding in Jesus. We have to have a living connection. It requires devotion. That's all good and fine because we ourselves desire to be disciples of Jesus. But now he says, go ye therefore and make disciples. That's where we started. So he's sending us out as quote-unquote salesmen to represent Jesus Christ, our employer, our master. We're saying, go out there and invite other people to be a disciple. So here's my question. What kind of a sales pitch can we make? How much does it cost to be a disciple of Jesus? Luke chapter 14, verse 25. Luke chapter 14 and verse 25. Because if you're going out there and you're saying, okay, Jesus is offering you one chance in a lifetime to be his disciple. Here are the benefits. You're going to be holy. You'll live a life of obedience to the law of God. Jesus will abide with you. He'll spend time with you. He will train you into his likeness. All of the benefits, all of these things, yes, If you're trying to sell something, the final question is always going to be, how much does it cost? Jesus explains, Luke 15, verse 25. And there went multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, and yea, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it, lest haply after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, that all behold it and begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish Or what king, going to make war against another king, sitteth not down first, and consulteth whether he be able, with ten thousand to meet him that cometh against him with twenty thousand? Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassage and desireth conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. Wow. This puts us in somewhat of a predicament. Because we are told to make disciples for Jesus. 
And we are telling people, you really want to be a disciple of Jesus, but it's going to cost everything you have. In fact, you have to be disciplined. You have to learn to be disciplined. You have to be connected with Jesus, and that means spending time with him. You have to be committed so that Jesus is be, comes before your father, your mother, your wife, your children, your brothers, even your life itself. You are going to have to carry a cross. You have to forsake all that you have. Don't you want to be a disciple of Jesus? Do you realize, do you, you understand the problem here? This is not an easy sales pitch to make. But that's exactly what Jesus told us to do. So how does this work? How can we convince others to be disciples? Maybe some of us, we're wondering, do I really want to be a disciple of Jesus? I mean, this is going to cost a lot. Oh my. Let me try to illustrate it to you with this story or this illustration. How many of you are familiar with the person named Franz Liszt, the musician, composer, pianist, If you've played piano, you've probably played something by him. He was a renowned composer and pianist of the 19th century, and many have called him the greatest pianist of all time. I don't know if that label is still true, but at least during his time, he was the greatest pianist. And he was the pioneer of what's called the master class, the format of education where he would have a small group of students and he would teach them at the keyboard. They would play, he would critique, he might play a few things and it would become this method now that many people use apparently to teach music at a high level. Do you suppose that many students wanted to study under Liszt? Yes. He was only the greatest pianist of his time, maybe of all time. And so there were students flocking to him from all over, and they would come highly recommended. They would bring letters of recommendation, trying to get into his classes. But Liszt was very particular. He was very selective. He would pick students on his own terms. And in order for you to be his student, you must audition in front of him. That's not so bad until you realize that he is known to be very blunt. In his criticism. Here is a direct quote from an individual who observed an audition, another student who played. This is what he said. He's quoting Franz Liszt. So Liszt says, that was definitely not played, but skewered. You know what skewered means? It means you slaughtered it, basically. He continues. He said, if you have no ears to hear, why do you play the piano? With whom did you study that? You must go to some conservatory, but don't come to me. Harsh words. And apparently this was written in public or spoken in public because someone else recorded what he said. How would you like to be publicly humiliated in front of the greatest, by the greatest pianist of your era? Do you suppose that this reputation affected the level of interest 
in becoming a disciple of Liszt? Do you think people stopped wanting to be his students when they found out how strict he was? They were beating the path down to his door. Do you think that the students who got admitted under the tutelage of Liszt ever complained about spending time with their master? Do you think they ever complained when Liszt corrected their playing? When he disciplined them for their technique? When he admonished them in their dynamics? in the emotions that they played with? Do you think they complained that their teacher expected them to practice? Why? I think those are all rhetorical questions. We all know there is no price too high when you get to be admitted to be a disciple of the greatest pianist of all time. And just imagine, just imagine if we had the opportunity to be a disciple of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Imagine if the greatest man who ever lived opened the doors and said, you can come in and study at my feet. What would you say then? What would be our reaction when he says, meet me in the morning? I'm giving you my best hours every morning. Are we going to complain? Are we going to say, I'd rather sleep in, sorry? When the King of Kings and Lord of Lords who says, you are welcome to learn as my disciple, when he corrects us, when he disciplines us, when he guides us in the way that we should go, How do we respond? How ought we to respond? So let me ask you again. Is it worth it to be the disciple of Jesus Christ? Is it more worth it to be his disciple than to be the disciple of the greatest pianist of all time? Ladies and gentlemen, the students of Franz Liszt, they would beat down the door to become his disciple because of who he was and what he can make them to become. We need to see through the eye of faith who Jesus is. And come to understand that by his grace, what we can become. Jesus says, go ye therefore and make disciples. Before we can make disciples, we need to be disciples. Yes, being a disciple requires learning. It might require some disciplinary action. It will require obedience. But obedience not out of coercion, but an obedience out of genuine love. And this love is only developed through an abiding relationship with Jesus. And this abiding relationship with Jesus requires time. 
requires effort, requires an intentional, an intentionality in how we arrange our lives. And yes, there is a cost to being the disciple of Jesus. But boy, is it worth it because of who he is and who we might become through him. So the appeal today is very simple. How many of us today want to be disciples of Jesus? Let me see your hand. Amen. And how many of us today want to help make others disciples of Jesus? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the promise in your word that if your words abide in us, we can ask what we will and it shall be done unto us. Lord, you have given us the commission to make disciples, but Lord, today we ourselves renew that commitment that we can be disciples of yours as well. Teach us, Lord, how to live this life of constant abiding. May our consecration be new every morning. May our devotion be constant and steadfast. May our ability to see through the eye of faith your work of pruning when we are going through the difficulties in life be clear. And may we count the cost and realize that it is worth all that we have to truly be the disciples of Jesus. Answer our prayer today, for we know it is in accordance to your will. We ask and pray now these things in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.